Hello and welcome to another edition of the Book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast. I'm your host, Peter, and I am still here. And tonight, I bring to you Austin of Mind Over Matter Records. We are still celebrating the release of the new Shadyside record. And most of the time, when there's a big push for an album, you know, you have the artists on, you have... Uh, maybe different members in different episodes uh, of a podcast, but uh, we're doing something a bit different here, and we're celebrating those that curate. Curation is as important as creation, to paraphrase Nicole Colbath of Soft Kill and Circle Social Records. Uh, she'd said that on her episode of my podcast uh, two years ago, um, and it's the truth. Those that curate, those that, you know, help to bring these pieces of art into the world that are, they're not artists per se, but they're a part of that machine in a positive manner, uh, vastly important because how else is that product going to make it into the world? And Austin is a phenomenal, phenomenal human being with the best intentions with, uh, Certainly his own manner of releasing music being that, you know, the the record covers are screen printed largely by him. Uh, His own artistic fingerprint is on each and every piece of of vinyl that makes it out of his warehouse. Uh, It's fully DIY. It's fully punk rock. And we dive into the machinations of the label, uh, how the Shady Side album came to him, and legitimately how hardcore saved all of our lives. And it truly did. Coming from uh, broken homes, most of us anyway, and, and having experienced problems that were far beyond our years, things that a child shouldn't necessarily be shown right or or involved in is what pushes so many of us to you know seek our own found family in this thing we call hardcore punk all of this to say we're a family all of us and as your spiritual brother it's very important for me to create and extend content to you that is like important to my heart and I know I'm stammering and I'm not going to edit because honestly I I want this to be stream of consciousness and I want it to be pure I love doing this I miss playing in bands but I love doing this and giving this to you all without further ado I give to you Austin of Mind Over Matter Records, and Vinny of Shadyside, on the book of Very, Very Bad Things Podcast. This 
This episode of the Book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast has been brought to you by our sponsors at Sweet Cheetah Publicity. Sweet Cheetah is a PR collective that values people over profit. They put a different spin on public relations by working primarily with friends and using all profits to aid charitable organizations. With a roster that includes Jawbox, The New Amsterdam's, Brainiac, Get Some, Funeral Date, Damien Dunn, and many more artists, record labels, and podcasts. Sweet Cheetah! That's a great PR cohort. You can find them on social media by simply searching Sweet Cheetah PR, and they'll be there. He's been Tim, I've been Peter, and Sweet Cheetah has been beautiful. So we've been trying to get this in for a ver- uh, like a long time, Austin. Uh, I think mostly it's my fault because... You know, old man raising four year my grandpa dad, I have a four year old, uh, on top of my twenty three year old. So yeah, I apologize for that. <laughs> I share in that blame. Uh I have two little ones, so I have a two year old and a six year old. And on top of everything else that I've gone on, that's why I said, Hey, if we're gonna do this, we gotta do it late at night. That's the that's the only time I've got. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's the only time I'm able to do it either, to be quite honest. And more often than not, that causes issues, but I mean, I, I, I take my wins where I can. Um, but I wanted to, before we get to, you know, the the Shady Side record, which is forthcoming, and I'm going to air this around the same time as it's released, um, I, I want to know your story. Like, it, it's ever since I discovered your label years ago, and looking at this incredible roster uh, that's you can't really pin it down everybody's different there's not the only common thread is being adjacent maybe to the scene but it's it none of it is you know like how victory records was the metalcore label and for a long time revelation was the youth crew label uh mind over matter is just as eclectic as any punk related label could possibly be and i guess what i wanted to know first is uh what drove you to start the label good question um it's a funny story so um you know my the first release on the label was evergreen terrace uh burned alive by time you know we we licensed it from eulogy records and um and that actually started because i was at an evergreen terrace show and uh the drummer wasn't feeling well and so the show ended and they were like hey like we're all gonna hang out here at the venue but our drummer needs to go back to the hotel uh, would anyone be willing to drive him? And I needed to get home anyway, so I was like, hey, I'll, I'll take him, you know, yeah. why not? Uh, so we were just driving to his hotel, and uh, I said, hey, like, this is weird to me, you know, like, your band, uh, you know, uh, you have members in Casey Jones and all these other, you know, affiliates that are, they have vinyl. Why yeah. doesn't Evergreen Terrace have any vinyl? And he just goes, why don't you put it out? And I was like, why don't I put it out? And uh, so... <laughs> Um, at the time, uh, a buddy of mine, he ran a record label, and, um, you know, I was half-assedly helping him out. I, I hate to even use that phrase, because I don't think I did much of anything to, to really assist him. Um, but I I was like, well, maybe I could do it on, you know, maybe I could pitch it to him. But he was focused mostly on CDs, and so I was like, all right, let me, uh, let, let's do this. And uh, so when the, when the label originally began, I had a couple of friends who, uh, they, you know, we all pulled some money together so we could afford the licensing fees from eulogy and as you know i'm pretty sure everybody does you know you get you send the package off to pirates press and you hope for the best when it comes back and 
Um, the only thing that I knew that I wanted to do a little bit differently was um, I wanted to I wanted to screen print the jackets. And at the time, I had never done any kind of like flat stock printing at all. Uh, I knew how to screen printed a lot of t-shirts, hoodies, things like that. Um, but I literally taught myself how to print on cardboard on paper for the Evergreen Terrace release. And of course, it was a five color print. It was it was a nightmare. I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never used the the, the ink before. Um, you know, we had like rope and clothes pinned all around my house. And, you know, it took me it took me probably seven, eight months to finish printing all of those uh all of those records when they were done and we, we pressed 500 of them which was far too many at the time um and so it was a nightmare <laughs> to do all of that but um but that really kind of like kick-started the process and then for me it, it the the art of doing the screen printed jackets it was almost a necessity because it was something that i could do on my own for relatively cheap um and as anyone who's ever pressed a record knows getting jackets manufactured is expensive it almost doubles the cost yeah. of the of the production and so I was like, well, this is a skill that I have. I have the materials and the equipment. Um, at the time, I had a lot more time. So I said, hey, I can just do all this by hand. Um, and to me, that felt a lot more punk rock uh, yeah. to do it that way. So, um, so I kind of stuck with that. And then it was, a for me now, still to this day, and the Shadyside release is another example of that. Like, I always want to kind of top myself. I want to do something bigger, badder, cooler than I had done on the previous release. Um, and that kind of becomes my driving force. It's like, how can I create something that is just wholly unique and something that no one else is doing right now? Um, and I stay up at night just thinking of weird shit I can do with vinyl. <laughs> what I, I really dig, too, is like uh, very, pretty recently, the new Damien Dunn record has a, a very unique and specific... Uh, uh, I forget what you'd called it over the top of the actual cover. Uh, 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 I remember Integrity had done similar things in the past with their records, but the way you did it, uh, I think, topped that. Well, what's the name of that process? Oh, yeah, it's a spot gloss. Spot gloss. How, mm -hmm. how, how did you even, like, how'd that occur to you? Um, so I, I had the materials to do that, and... Um... I had never just I had never done it quite like I did on on that release, and we knew we wanted to do gloss to begin with. Um, but when you when you send it out to get it manufactured, um, it comes back very light gloss. Like you can kind of see it if you hold it to the light just right, but it doesn't really pop. Uh, and Damien, he's very specific, so he's like, I want it to pop. I need it to be big and bold but also invisible. And so I was like, okay, of course, that is a request that only Damien would make. Yeah. Um, and so I was kind of like toying around with the idea and, and I initially started with saying, Hey man, let me screen print this. And he said, no man, like, I think it needs to be bigger and bolder. And I was like, ah, trust me, I think I can do this. Um, but then the place that I use uh, for some of my print work locally here in Chicago, I was dropping some stuff off and they had some samples from one of their vendors and they had this, uh, it was a poster. I think it was for like some booze advertisement or something, but it had this insanely thick, 3d spot gloss it almost looked like it was um like embossed you know it was raised up off the paper real real thick and so i said could could you do this on record jackets and they're like yes i said cool so we 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 put in the quote we got everything going uh records were in manufacture damien gets me the artwork i ship the jackets off to get those going and then the vendor 
comes back and they're like, oh, hey, uh, we misquoted you for this. Um, it's actually going to be twice as much. Um, and at this point, I mean, I think it, I think it came out something to the tune of like almost 4,200 bucks just for 200 jackets. And, uh, you know, it was an additional 13 or $14 per record. And so I called Damien. I was like, dude, like, it, it doesn't make sense. We can't do that. You know, like, yes, it would have been sweet. I was like, but man, like now we're looking at having to charge people almost $40 a record for this. Um, you know, I was like, I, I think that's a bridge too far. So I said, I need you to trust me. I'm going to screen print this. And he went, all right, man, go for it. So, uh, so it was, a, it was a little bit of a leap of faith from Damien. We, we came full circle. We ended up back where I started with, let me do this by hand. Um, and then, yeah. And then, uh, I screen printed them just like I would anything else. The only real difference with those was that, that, that ink, it has to, it has to cure for like 48 hours. And I don't have a proper printing studio. Uh, so they were literally just hanging in my garage. You know, I had like little binder clips and everything all hanging around the garage. So you no know, one could use the garage for a few days while, <laughs> while I got everything going. Um, but in the end, you know, I think, I think Damien was really happy with how they turned out. And, you know, we got exactly what we we're hoping for is a nice, thick, bold gloss, but ultimately doesn't take away from that artwork because that artwork, artwork was just so stark and perfect that we didn't want to have anything taking away from it it had to be subtle and you know the way uh you'd done the guilt record i thought uh probably more from an audio perspective than anything was like i we all had a problem with the way bardstown ugly box sounded uh the only way in back in the 90s that you could listen to a good version of bardstown was on the cassette the cassette version sounded great the CD sounded terrible and the vinyl sounded real bad. So like you, you, you pretty much resurrected and reintroduced a classic, uh, post hardcore album to uh, an entirely new generation of people. And as you know, uh, we're both very good friends with Duncan. Um, how did that come to pass? Because I know you've been doing, uh, solo stuff with him. Yeah, yeah. That, that one, honestly, that one, I feel like I did nothing. Um, you know, Duncan was the one who really spearheaded um, getting the audio remastered, you know, and he, I think he sent me about probably 12 different iterations of the remix and the remaster, you know, as he was tweaking it. And admittedly, at one point, I was like, Duncan, I can't tell the difference, man. <laughs> they both sound great. I don't, I can't A, B, and tell which one is different. Um, but, you know, he, he had a vision in his mind. Um, but all of that really goes goes really far back. Um, and and there's a, a friend of the label, his name is Juan. Um, you might have seen him. He posts occasionally on some of our social media. We, we, we joke around. We call him my chief lackey. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but Juan and I have been friends for a while, and he's been a big supporter of the label for a long time. And um, there have been a couple of instances where he's basically said, like, he introduced me to someone and said, hey, you should meet Austin. You guys should work together. And Duncan was one of those people. And so back in 2018, I was doing the, uh, I tried to do a seven inch of the month club where I tried to release a seven inch every month. That was impossible, by the way. Yeah. Don't try to do that. It was a nightmare. Um, but I did release 12 7 inches, and one of them uh, was Duncan as a solo work, and, and he really wanted to do a holiday release. So he he claimed December and said, I'm going to do something for Christmas. Said, Great. Let's do it. So uh, we had a lot of fun with that. And while we were working on that, he had his solo full length, and he was working with another label. And um, I'm not entirely sure what went wrong with it, but it went south. 
And uh, so he called me up kind of in the zero hour and just, he just said like, hey, listen, like this thing is dead in the water. Will you help me release it? And I said, of course. So we did that and we brought that to life. And that was the, um, you know, the Colony Collapse LP, which is beautiful. So yeah. I'm super excited that we got to work on that. Um, and while we were working on that, he he kind of like dropped that hint, like, hey, would you ever want to do this guilt reissue? I'm kind of working on some stuff. And I was like, sure, of course. <laughs> um, and then and that's when he started sending me some of those remixes. And that's when I was like, this is going to be special. Like, this is incredible. Um, and so from there, with that release, you're right. Like, the, the focus was on that, that remix uh, and that remaster because that stole the show. Yeah. Um, and the artwork uh, for that release was super special and important to the band um, and to Duncan. And so we were immediately like, okay, we're not, we're not screwing with that. We're not going to do anything to take away from that. We just want to make sure that it's preserved and that it looks terrific on a, uh, on a 12-inch record. And, um, and so then where I got to kind of step in a little bit was with the, um, the release show version. So we created a separate kind of slip cover that went over the record. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we made a small batch of those for people that were going to be in attendance in Louisville for the release show. So there was still a little bit of like a, a DIY touch and something screen printed and fun with it. Um, but all of that just kind of, again, it kind of just fell into my lap. You know, Juan introduced us. We did that seven inch. That other label wasn't able to make the twelve inch happen, and then he said, "Hey, this is this is all going great. How do you how do you feel about guilt?" <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's like I feel great about guilt. We should definitely work on that. <laughs> they're they're uh, in in my opinion, uh, every uh, hardcore band or hardcore adjacent band Duncan has ever been in was vastly important. I love Endpoint. Uh, when I first started going to hardcore shows in the late '80s, I saw Endpoint. One of my first shows was Endpoint. Uh, but for some reason, uh, guilt and the album Bardstown Ugly Box are there. It's such a massive touchstone for my, for me, for my youth, um, because the things I, I'd gotten into, like my favorite band now and then, was Neurosis. And anybody who was as out there and forward thinking as Neurosis, that was my, that was my stuff. So when when Duncan made that switch from you know melodic hardcore to this 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 very aggressive very cerebral artsy uh, band and they put out that first ten inch Synesthesia, it just took me to a whole, on a path legitimately like I I it changed the way I played music as a musician. Yeah. Um, so it's just so special to me that you got to put it out because I've been buying your records for years. I think I have a stack of those note cards you send out. Probably that <laughs> thick. <laughs> that, that's the question that I have for anyone who's listening to this who's ever supported the label. If you bought more than one release, the question is, the notes that I write, do you keep them? And I, if you keep them, do they stay with the record you bought or do you mine keep do. them separately? Mine stay inside <laughs> inside the 12 inch sleeve or seven inch sleeve uh whichever um <laughs> and what's really amusing is most uh mind over matter releases that i own i own doubles or maybe triples of so i have like you would think the notes would be <laughs> duplicate notes but they're not they're different every every single one is different yeah uh, and i i don't know that's fun for me i don't i can't remember ever ordering anything from uh 
maybe Ebullition is one of the only labels I'd ever ordered from where I got a handwritten note. But when I was a kid ordering from Alternative Tentacles or, or Revelation or um, I'm trying to think of some like Smorgasbord, any of those labels, nothing, nothing. So that it's very it's a it's a very personal experience to hand over my hard-earned cash to you because there's uh, a reciprocity and an appreciation there that you're not going to get ordering from any other DIY label. And I salute you for that because it's very important. And it makes, I to me, it makes me feel like I felt 30 years ago going to shows, 35 years ago, uh, where it was a real community for me. And, you know, I was a part of it. It wasn't just a one-sided relationship. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I mean, gave me chills just saying all that. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, that's that's exactly what I'm aiming for, truly. You know, like, I'm I'm not aiming to be that label that's going to suddenly start needing to press 10,000 records. You know, like, I'm I'm really pleased with the the niche community that, that I've created. And, you know, even even down just little things, you know, like, you know, there's a, there's a support of the label. You know, I've... I see his name on everything and every now and again, I'll throw a free record or a free t-shirt in or whatever. Um, and then he was at Furnace Fest and there was a release that I really wanted. And I was like, dude, we help me out. We pick this up. And he's like, absolutely. At least I can do, you know? And it's like, I love that just kind of like community piece of it. Um, and that experience that you mentioned, like that's, that's 100% by design. You know, I want to make it uh, to your point. No one has a lot of extra money right now. So whenever anyone spends money, on something that I've put out, I'm truly appreciative. And so I want to make it more of an experience, right? So um, yeah, I don't like to do pre-orders, so I won't put something up and then have the record ship six, eight months later, because I yeah. think that's a bad experience. Um, you know, the handwritten notes are a huge part of it. And, you know, I, I stole that from other labels. It's not new. Um, yeah, but no. I remember, you know, early Bridge Nine, um, you know, maybe even Level Plane, a few other places where, you know, I'd get a CD and there'd be a little note, just thank you. And I thought, how can I do that and ramp it up a notch, you know? And that's, you know, I've got the little five by five cards. And, you know, I, I just write a quick little note, nothing crazy, but, it, it, you know, it, it slows things down for sure. I could do mail order in a fraction of the time if I, I cut that step out if i think about it all the time but i'm like oh i can't like that's a part of the experience um same with like the um making my own mailers you know the custom screen printed boxes that everything i saved those too <laughs> that's the other question second question for the listeners who here keeps their mailers <laughs> hold on a second <laughs> The bard sound. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I, well, if you look behind me, there's over... I haven't done a count recently. I have to go on my Discogs and, and find out how many I own. But I think I'm around like 7,800 pieces of vinyl in this room uh, currently. I have a problem. I don't know if there's Bingo. any help for that. <laughs> We could we could start one. I'm sure we're not the only ones who need it. Support group, yeah. So I I didn't pay my mortgage, but I got a you know eight versions of the new uh, SSD reissue, and which I I I didn't get eight. I got one, two, three, four, five, six because they just you know reissued. The kids will have their say. Yeah, I I got the the one that out for the people who bought hats and stuff off uh, Al Baril from the Exclaim uh, website. Uh, 
if you ordered something from him, he sent you a card with a number on it and didn't tell anybody what it was for for years. And then when this reissue was coming, he said, if you have one of these cards, email me with your email address and your card number, and you'll be eligible to get this special release. So it took a couple of days for that to happen. But long story short, I ended up ordering every version of it that came out. <laughs> Amazing. I know it's sad. Like, what, what am I going to do with that? I'm not going to listen to all of them. I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to find one that I desire the, uh, you know, physically the least play that one and like meticulously store the rest of them because I'm a whack job and I'll probably never sell them. I own a copy of judge chunk Hink and suck it that I could have sold when I was broke so many times. I could have gotten myself out of so many jams. Now I just fetishize it. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely have a handful of bands where, you know, I've set out to, to get everything and it's problematic. You know, uh, whenever, whenever those bands have new releases coming out, I'm instantly like sweating, like, Oh God, how, how am I going to afford all of this? <laughs> Here it comes. Like, <laughs> but you know, you, a lot of the notes I've gotten from you are like, I can't, I, don't even know how you knew about this because I didn't blast it out on social media yet. And, and I've gotten that note from you a couple times. And the answer is this, I'm friends with half of these people. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, they, they lot, give you the heads up. Yeah. A lot of the people <laughs> on your label are my buddies. So I just, Hey dude, it's out. Okay. Done. Well, um, it's, it's wild because like everything that I do is manual. Right. So like, uh, you know, I had a buddy of mine who helped me create the website, but I maintain it. And so when there's a new release that's coming up, like I'm literally coding it and then I have to like click a button and then it goes live, you know? So when I click that button and it goes live and then 30 seconds later, your name pops up. I'm truly just like, what the fuck? Like I haven't even had time to pick up my phone yet and say, Hey, this is available. And somehow Peter has already ordered two copies. of it. <laughs> like I, for, for a while there, I was thinking that you had like an RSS feed or something. So you just knew when the site updated and then, started to panic like he knows all the stuff i'm doing in the background no. <laughs> i just <laughs> especially damien and duncan i'm like like they're buddies of mine so i i fought they let me know like yo it's coming here it is um so there's no magic involved because i'm legitimately uh in front of a computer uh i'm not gifted by any stretch i don't i don't know how, why do you think i have uh vinny hanging out here because i there was no way i was going to be able to figure out how to do a video podcast you can edit it out Vinny. don't get mad at me it's all great <laughs> there you've kind of struck gold with a certain artist um and they are kind of like huge right now one of like my daughter knows about this band and it's i find it strange because she was raised around all of this music and dad being in hardcore bands and stuff and never really interested and then what was it bad rabbits yeah they're on your she loves them she turned me on to them I, and like you know they're on your label i know who they are but i i she i didn't really get a chance to like fully get into them and my daughter turns me on to them and <laughs> i'm like they must be big if she likes them because she likes pop music how did that relationship come to pass yeah, that's a good one. So, um, uh, are you familiar with the band Irrepress mm -hmm. on Translation Loss? Yep. Um, Irrepress was on tour with a band called Battlefields. Um, 
you know, members of examination of the, you know, some South Dakotan, uh, you know, screamo emo bands. But uh, so Battlefield's an ear press run tour, and they came through my old hometown, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, as was the time before children when bands were coming through, I said, hey, you can stay at my place if you need a place to crash. So um, the ear press dudes decided to crash at my place. I'd never met them before. Um, but uh, Shield, the drummer, uh, is also the drummer in Bad Rabbits. And uh, their ear press's tour manager, Salim, is the guitarist in Bad Rabbits. And so they were there for this, you know, this metal show. And Salim hands me this CD and is like, hey, this is our other band. You should check it out. Sweet. Had no expectations of what that was going to sound like. But given the show we were at, I was like, certainly this is going to be some incredible, like, metal stuff they just handed me. And uh, so, you know, we, we go about our, our days. You know, they were, they were there that night. We did the rock show. Uh, a side note, Irrepress. Absolutely incredible. I, I, I tell the story all the time, but, like, they played in my friend's living room and it's it was almost like they had tuned their entire sound to play in that living room i'd never heard a, a, a punk show that sounded that good and they were just so tight it was flawless um anyhow a couple of days go by finally i'm like all right let's check out this cd and i put it in and of course it's this like funk r&b pop thing and i'm like this is wild what is this i did not expect it you know but um but I have very eclectic taste. So I was like, this is, this is fantastic. You know, so I was, I was digging it. Um, you know, when they gave it to me, like, Hey, we're about to have an EP that's going to come out as well. And this was still in like the MySpace era, you know? And so um, they put this EP out and they were just like, Hey, for free, check it out. Stick up kids. And I was at work that day and I remember I gave it one listen. And then I immediately brought it back home to my girlfriend, now wife. And I was like, you're going to fucking love this. And so I put it on and sure enough, just instant dance party. Um, and so I reached back out through friends of friends to get a hold of Sheila and Salim. And I said, Hey, can I put this out on vinyl? And they were like, sure. We don't know who you are. Go for it. <laughs> you know? Um, and they were so very early in, in their, uh, you know, in, in their career. And, um, and that was the first kind of like whiff. Cause I think that was my sixth release. Right. So I had had a few just kind of like farting around or whatever. Um, but just like I had been doing to that point, I wanted to like, top myself i wanted to make it crazy so you know came up with this crazy die cut jacket um that i had each one cut one at a time with a laser and then it was like a six color screen prints and did all these things and i made these elaborate boxes you know that i glued them all together and the little flaps with the velcro just spent months working on these things just thinking no one's gonna buy these like this is so absurd why am i putting all this money into it and so I was so nervous that no one was going to buy it that I, I priced them at a loss because I was like, all right, I'm taking a, a risk on this. And this is this band that's totally out of left field, even for what I've put out so far. Um, and of course, they sold out just super fast. And so yep. took the world's biggest L on them. And I was like, well, yeah, you live, you learn, you know. Um, and then instantly people were like, please repress this. And the band was like, nope. They were like, this is so cool. It is so cool that the, the demand is there. And I was like, yeah, man, but like people are paying like 200 bucks for these on eBay. Yeah, the resale is ridiculous on those. I was like, don't you want to make some of that money? And they're like, no, fuck it. Let it roll. And I was like, okay. And so it, it, was liter it wasn't literally until the 10-year anniversary of that record that they finally let me repress it. You know, I, after 10 years of me being like, please, let's just do another run of it. We can do anything. They're like, no, no dice. 
Um, even to that point, I remember seeing them at a show one time, and I think it was Celine, and he just said, like, no way, dude, we're never going to repress that. We're going to let that just be the world's most expensive record. <laughs> so I'm glad that they changed their mind on it. I, I think because it, it was getting it was getting out of hand. You know, though, uh, these fetish items, like, they become lore, don't they? Uh, I, I have so many, like, seven inches and stuff that, you know, they, they've become infamous almost. Uh, when the first Locust 12-inch was coming out, um, one of my best friends, uh, he and I were playing in a different band together way before they started in Albatross. But we were playing shows with the Locust all the time around here and then driving out to, you know, New York or Philly or wherever to play with them. And they were making this camouflage 12 inch. And everybody was like, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to see a camouflage 12 inch. The records came out and they were turquoise and pink and like just crazy ugly looking. And they did a short run of those and then finally got the uh, pressing plant to perfect a camouflage look for a 12 inch which they were happy but that first run that very short first run became this legendary piece right where they were the mistake and everybody wants this fucking thing everybody wants this record for some reason and you see it going for stupid amounts of money money on ebay and it was a mistake yeah. Just like you, 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 you put so much thought and, and care into something and, and make it very articulate and, and, you know, like a, like an art piece, a true art piece, you take a loss on it and you have to, at some point wish you'd kept about 50 to a hundred of them to put on eBay and, and come up on them whenever you need like some money. 100%. You have no idea. Every time I see one, like, uh, even just this week, um, I saw I saw this guy. I'll call him an acquaintance, but he, you know he was someone that you know uh, he had a, he kind of a pull from like a distribution standpoint. And I remember I sent him a copy of Stick Up Kids along with a few others. Um, never landed the distro. Never got anything from that relationship at all. But I saw him you know on Facebook and like one of the groups I'm a part of you know selling that for you know two hundred bucks. And I was like, man, I gave you that for free. <laughs> Yeah, you're a scumbag. <laughs> I don't think that, but at the no. same time, I'm like, I should have kept it. Like, that could have been my 200 bucks. You know, I could have put that toward another release or whatever. But, um, you know, but I, I think back even to that Evergreen Terrace release, you know, toward the end, you know, I it, I still had, and I still had a lot of them, probably 100 copies when I moved from Michigan to California. And that's when I was like, I got to start unloading some of these things, you know. So I was selling them for like five bucks. Make, make me an offer, just like, take these records off of my hands. I got to get them out of my house. You know, fast forward now, you know, same thing. I see him selling for a couple hundred bucks. You know, I've got people yeah. probably once a month who hit me up like, yeah, I mean, he's laying around. It's like, I couldn't give these things away <laughs> 10 years ago. <laughs> Spaces in the minimum. I get to hold on to everything in the hopes that one day it's going to become cult classic and people are going to want a copy, you know? <laughs> And I think that's becoming more and more of a thing with your label. Like there are these records that, you know, maybe they're slow burns for people at first. I don't know what it is, but you'll put something out. And then like a year and a half, two years later, it like something about them just pops for people uh, like that Zayo uh, side project, 12 inch you put out. I'm, I'm trying to 
summon the name of of the project. It was the dude from Zayo, and it was fucking phenomenal. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Pack. Yeah, yeah. Like, yep. in, in, like incredible record, right? And I that didn't start selling out immediately at first, did it? No, um, and it's uh, that one. That one's my heartbreak record. Uh, that that ten inch that I did because uh, you know it's got that really elaborate screen prints on both sides. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that's a band that I think could easily be huge. Um, you know, they, they've got the sound. The riffs are there. You know, and we put a lot of heart into the the records. Yeah. Um, but it hasn't hasn't fully caught on yet. You know, that's when people ask me and they say, "Hey, what's you know what's the the record that you know, really defines what you do as a label that like sets you apart?" I I pull that one out. I'm like, "You got to see this. Like, screen printed on both sides. It's so sweet." Um, and then yeah, I mean, I we only made 300 of those. I mean, I probably still have 200 left. It's like that's really yeah, that so good. It breaks my heart. It's so good. It's it's such a good one. Um, but uh, you know that I think that's that's one of those bands that you know people didn't really expect it. And you said, hey, you know, this is a side project of Zayo and Juliana Theory and Punchline, and then you put it together and you get this like sick, you know, kind of like alternative pop rock thing. You know, like sick guitarists, killer hooks. I don't know. I think people just haven't quite figured out where that lands yet in the genre landscape. You know, it's so very guitar rock driven and. Um, you know, let's be honest. Like guitar rock isn't in the mainstream right now, so yeah. you know, I think it'll have its. I think it'll have its time in the sun, and I, I'm I'm guessing that'll be one of those that'll be probably years down the road after I've sold through the last lot of those, and people are like, well, where's this pack ten inch? <laughs> I, re- I, I <laughs> hope my new my new pattern rabbits. My listeners are like, okay, we're gonna catch on to this and start buying it because I I thought that was gonna I thought you were gonna tell me a different story, quite honestly. Yeah. To me, that seems like it would be a like a cult type of hit, you know. It it was poised to be, I think. Uh, yeah. It, I, I, there's no really gauging what people are going to get into, and you know that's I think where the gamble lies with with a venture like yours, uh, which you know should be a testament to okay, this guy's definitely not doing it for the money because there is no guarantee you could sit on stock for years. Or you could spend a ton of money and, and sell for <laughs> something and not make money on it. it obviously, money is not the point. Um, Definitely not. What do you think the preceding point is then to, to give so much of your time and your love and your attention and money to something that's an, a gamble? My buddy Damien, he runs a label called Colloquial Sound Recordings. And he one day said to me, he's like, it's just money. You'll get more of it. And, um, you know, that was that was after he told me about this insane project that he did where he he paid for an entire year to have a 1-800 number. And then every month he would upload a new song and you'd have to call this phone number to hear the song. And so and, and you know, I, like. I was like, this is such an incredible idea. And then he told me how much it cost him to have this 1-800 number for a whole year. And I was like, dude, I love you for that. And then he said, that's just money. You'll get more. Um, but like, that's, that's kind of how I view it truly. You know, like, you know, when, when things get tough here in normal world where I have to be an adult and a father and all those other things, like I'll slow it down. I won't put on as much stuff, you know, kind of pump the brakes. Won't do as much crazy stuff. Um, but I think, you know, to actually answer your question, I think for me, it's just, you know, uh, it's cheesy but music's a bit, always been a big part of my life you know i think back to 
you know, every integral thing that happened to me. And it's like, you know, music is a foundational part of that. And, uh, you know, it's cheesy, but like hardcore saved my life, you know? So it's like, I, I feel, I feel indebted to give that back into the world. And, you know, and I think that where I, I strive to just do things a little bit differently is I think anyone can upload music to Spotify. I think anyone can save up a couple grand and ship off that package to Pirates Press and, and get it back. You know, um, I, I want to make it going back. You know, if you're going to spend hard earned money on something, if, you've, if you're going to gamble back on me when I've gambled out into the world, I want to make it an experience. I want to make it fun. Um, you know, I want to make it unique. It's going to be, you know, just just opening the package. It's going to be something different than you've maybe ever done from any other mail order you've ever placed <laughs> in the time of mail order, which is all we do now. Um, you know, how can I make that one box sitting on your porch different or better or cool? And, you know, the part that I always grapple with is that, like, what do I charge for these things? Um, because at the end of the day, I put an absurd amount of time into these things even even though they don't necessarily cost me a lot of money to do the screen printing part or to fold them all down and glue them up um but then i'm like well how do i how do i charge for my time you know is is that is that relevant to the the person who wants to buy it and and always wanting to kind of toe that line between i want to get the music out there and i want people to have that experience while also not pricing people out and have them go well i'm not going to take the risk on this i'm not going to gamble with my money because what if I don't like this record? What if it's not cool enough? Um, and that's why, you know, it's almost always a loss. There's there's very few records that I've put out where I can say, yeah, I made back the money that I put into it. And if you can guarantee, if you ever see that sold out button on my website, that means I've just barely made back <laughs> what I put into it. If even, um, you know, there's there's no there's no big profits uh, soaring around. <laughs> <laughs> over meta records uh but that's always the goal is like can i can i make back what i put into it so that i can put that into something else and try to make it cyclical so that you know i can keep kind of putting music back out into the world what was the first record that really bit you like that made you want to create an experience like this the first time you bought a, a piece of vinyl opened it up and had such uh, an immersive tactile experience that you thought to yourself, Oh God, I have to do something like this. Ooh, you know, I, I don't know that there's any one necessarily, but I, I can think back. To, I think back to two things that really kind of jumped out. I mean, the first one are like early page 99 records, you know, they were all document number blank or whatever. And, you know, I think about some of the ones that had like crime scene photo negatives in them, or they're wrapped in, bubble uh bubble wrap and then you know magic bullet you know they at their earlier phases they always had really cool packaging um and so i you know some of those things along with um you know that buddy of mine that i mentioned back when i was first talking about evergreen terrace he did a lot of the same things with cds and so when i said i helped him like i sat around and watched him create (laughs) these really cool cd packages um and it was really like i saw how he was getting that back out into the world and so i wanted to translate those kind of things into the vinyl medium which is what i was always passionate about um while kind of leveraging some of the niche skills that i had acquired over the years with screen printing and things like that so it kind of became an amalgam you know i I can't say that it was any one thing that said yes this is what i want to do but um 
you know, throughout my life in a lot of different things with music. And, you know, even the idea of kind of starting a label kind of stemmed from, I used to be in a band and when I couldn't or didn't want to do that any longer, how do I still be a part of the music community without trying to find, you know, time to practice three nights a week with, with the guys. <laughs> so it was like, well, a label provides me that space to still be involved in the scene and still network, still build that community, but kind of play a different role in the process. And you know, th there's a, uh, there's something coming out very soon uh, that, you know, is relative to when this will be released, which is uh, my friends and shady side and they're, don't call it a comeback, but you know, it's, it's, it's a comeback for them. Like they haven't, we haven't heard from them in a very long time. Uh, and this vinyl, I, I, I know nothing of the cover. No one's shown me anything, but Wendell has teased me and you just did online as well with just the outer edge of test presses with what looks to be like Swiss cheese holes throughout <laughs> the, the edge of the vinyl itself. Uh, and, and of course, Wendell sends me that picture, uh, a, a little while back and I have to quote Anchorman, you ate an entire wheel of cheese. Like, <laughs> what are you showing me right now? So well, where does this, where does this stem from? And what, what is the, what, what is kind of the, the idea behind the holy vinyl? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so first let's, let's talk about how shady side entered my world um which i think is important um casey from oh, them. no no I'm um, <laughs> i love you Vin. um casey casey from I Iodom hit me up and just said he said hey there's this awesome record friends of mine i just don't have the space on my my roster right now my calendar you should you should check them out and when Casey from Iodine sends you a link to an album, you, you stop and you listen to it, you know? Yeah. And so, um, you know, shout out to Casey because he's someone that you know, has absolutely no reason to believe in what I do. And, you know, he's someone that I look up to. Um, and so, you know, to have him sing praises to the work that, that I do is monumental to me. It blows my mind. Um, so he, send, he sends me the, uh, you know, the SoundCloud link and you know, I listen to it. And uh, I'm instantly like, yes, this is incredible. You know, not at all. It's it sounds different than I anticipated, knowing the records from 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, perfectly familiar. You know, and I think for old folks such as us, it's incredible to hear bands that, you know, when they make that leap, and you're like, hey, I matured. So did they, and they matured at the exact same trajectory <laughs> that I did, and the music has evolved perfectly with what I still am currently in love with and recognizing that, you know, if it was the same record that came out 20 years ago, it wouldn't resonate the same. It wouldn't feel the same. Um, so I was instantly in love and I was like, yes, absolutely. Let's do it. Um, so kind of fast forward to there, um, you know, the, the, the album art, um, I believe it's Michael's son, Michael Malarkey. Um, it's a picture of his son blowing bubbles. And so it's, you know, it's this really washed out image, um, beautiful, like blues and greens with all these bubbles surrounding him. And so, you know, when I first started talking to the band and we were spitballing, you know, and, you know, as we're in learning about each other and I'm introducing, you know, hey, I'm this label and I do crazy stuff with packaging. So I want to, I want to make this insane. Do you have any thoughts? And they were like, oh, what do you want to do? <laughs> so I mulled over it for a little bit. 
And, you know, what, what I, the only thing that I could think of was, you know, this is an EP, it belongs on a 10-inch. Pressing a 10-inch is not financially responsible because yeah. they literally press a 12-inch and cut the edges off. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then you have to charge just as much, you know. And then then that that goes back to my eternal debate: What do I charge for this? Because this is clearly an EP, and, but I have to charge LP prices because that's what I'm being charged for them. So then I thought, well, how can I maintain it as a 12 inch anyhow, and and still find something cool to do with it? And so I thought, well, what maybe I could have it pressed like a 10 inch. Maybe I could do something fun with that outer that outer edge, and. Um, and I was like, you know what? What if we were to bring that bubble theme and try to make it look like there were bubbles going around the outer edge of the record and you could just start the music and inch and some change into the record. And I made the world's crappiest mock-up. I sent it over to, to the band and said, what do you think? And they went, cool. And I was like, that was the worst mock-up. Like, I don't know how they, they bought into this idea, but they were on board. So... Um, so then I had to go through the, you know, the, the, the steps of, you know, talking to the person who's going to cut the lacquer to make sure they understood my vision. I was like, there can't be anything in that outer edge, you know, pretend like they're going to cut it off like a 10 inch, but don't cut it off like a 10 inch and getting into the pressing plant. Same thing. Like, Hey, you, you got to make sure you don't do anything in this outer edge. It still needs to be a 12 inch. Um, and once those were done, then I had to find someone who would help me cut those out. Um, and you know, so it wasn't done in the manufacturing stage because there's a lot of really intricate little tiny holes in there. Actually, let me, I have one right here. I'll show you just that way the people who are, uh, watching this have a better idea, but here's, here's the whole, the whole record. And so you can see there's some little tiny holes in there and we, we were not going to be able to make a die that was going to cut those out and have it look clean. But if you, if they were too big, they wouldn't look like bubbles, you know? So that was... That was the whole thing. Is like, how do I still actually make it look like bubbles and not look like Swiss cheese? Um, I <laughs> so, only saw a very small uh, piece, so <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I, I gave a little teaser, um, but I found I, you know, I worked with um, a gentleman that I've used for a lot of different stuff, and, and they were laser cut, and so they're being cut out one at a time by a laser, um, and uh, and we're only doing it on a small portion of the pressing. You know, the rest of them I'm going to screen print the bubbles and they'll they'll look a little bit more like bubbles because we can add more texture and detail into the screen print than we can when they're being cut out um but this one's gonna be this one's gonna be a a nice little test i think you know not just for fans of the band but you know i think this is gonna bring some people into the record that maybe are just curious about this as a physical creation um up to this point i've been saying that i had never seen another record with die cut like a long the uh the the record and then i saw one today really today and i was like oh it was original to me but it's not original in the world and it was a Jimi hendrix seven inch of like him is the star spangled banner and it had these stars cut out along the outer edge and i was like man i ripped off Jimi hendrix and didn't even know it (laughs) at at least you ripped off Jimi hendrix (laughs) you know you didn't you didn't go to some lesser god like if you're ripping off Hendrix or Mark Bolin, I'm I'm on board. I'm 100 percent with you. And you know that but you yeah. didn't rip anybody off. You you were following a theme. Uh, just so uh, we understand each other, you're saving me one of those. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Set aside. I mean, as, as if you're not going to be the first person to order it. Let's I am going to be the first person to order it. And we all know this. <laughs> but, well, I, I might try and beat him to that. I got order for the whole band ourselves. So. <laughs> <laughs> as long as I get one, that's all I care about. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I have to, I know we're supposed to pretend Vinny's not here, but I got to give Vinny flowers really quick. And we could cut it out if you want, Vin, but I don't think we should. Um, the past, like you guys know my podcasts. It's always like, I've made like really crappy little commercials. You know what I mean? I never mm -hmm. did like a, a video podcast. The only time I ever had my wife make video for me was for, uh, the first time Michael came on my podcast. He's been on a bunch of since, but you know, I, I had to put his face on there because he's, he's a pretty man. Uh, and he kind of is. Yeah. Yeah, That's and definitely. most most of us are have faces for radio. I'm talking about me, Austin. You're a handsome man, but uh, you know what I mean. Like nobody Thanks. wants to, nobody wants to look at me. <laughs> we did so talk I, about your hair during our yeah, little break. Yeah, so. I wish I had some of that <laughs> shit. But uh, you know, a male pattern baldness skinhead. Oi, oi. But there's a uh, <laughs> there. It, it's really special uh, to me that I, I have Vinny with me here and i i have michael to thank because mike and i became buddies just from him being on the podcast staying in touch and we just kept doing shit together and then i meet the shady side guys and and vinnie just comes to me and says yo i want to i want to do video for you uh basically kind of like who yeah. does your video that's how it went who does your video uh yeah me i suck at it why you <laughs> yeah that was but, almost verbatim but yeah 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 <laughs> And uh, I know his vision was he was going to lay in the background, but I, I, I'm, I don't know, man. I think this is great. I just wanted to, I, I wanted to point it out. I'm glad you're here. I appreciate you. Thanks, sir. Uh, I'll, well, since we're being sappy fuckers, uh, let me also take this time uh, to speak on behalf of the band uh, and just show our appreciation uh, to you, Pete, to you, Austin, also with uh, Tim over at Sweet Cheetah. It's a majority of the career of Shady Side has been lots of DIY, us pushing our, our vision, our music, our sound. And it's just this humbling, refreshing uh, appreciation that other people are pushing for us or with us, you know? And it's very genuine. So, on behalf of the band and myself, I would like to thank you three and don't tell anyone I'm this sappy because <laughs> that's it. That's all you get. All right. Thank you. Penny. <laughs> all right. Get back to your podcast. Yeah. We're getting back to the podcast. <laughs> it's, it's I'm, I'm looking forward to see how this gets edited. This is going to be good. Oh yeah. 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 Oh, you won't see, <laughs> won't see this at all. I'm out. Oh, <laughs> boo. Listen, um, there's a, uh, kind of a question i've always I've, I've always wanted to ask you austin and it started with me and damien uh we were on one of our men damien's been on my show almost as much as malarkey like they're neck and neck for being the people who've been on most and tara from lycia those three people have been on more than anyone and damien and i were talking one night and I think it was not on the podcast. I think we stopped. We we were on for about seven hours together. No bullshit. We were drinking 
and we did about four hours on the podcast that I narrowed down to three and we were just talking shit for hours and it came up where like, yo, how'd you, how'd you meet Austin? I asked him and he's like, oh yeah, this, that. like we went through it a little bit and I was like, yo, is he Christian? And he's like, I wondered the same thing. I said, I don't even know why I want to know that, but like, you know, it, it seems to me like he's a, <laughs> he's a Christian or something. I get that vibe. <laughs> I don't know where that came, I don't know where that came from, but I, I kind of got that impression, and I don't know why. I, I think it's because you're such a positive person that I, I it, it kind of like smacked of that for me, or maybe a Krishna. I don't know, but uh, it, inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> I think once once people who know me, if anyone listens to this, they they they're, they're going to be spitting their water out of their nose right now. Um, First of all, at the, the fact that you think I'm positive—that's that's a beautiful thing. Um, as you get to know me even more, you learn that the heart is cold, it's dead, it's black. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and and selfishly, like one of my favorite parts about running the record label is like I don't have to put up with people's bullshit. Yeah. So if someone starts being a punisher online, I just. I refund them, delete their order, never order for me again. And it's yeah. so wonderful to be able to do that. Um, but to answer your question, uh, no, not not a Christian. I'm I'm very very atheist. Okay. Um, <laughs> and that's the first anyone's ever um, maybe made that assumption about me. I I am straight edge, uh, so you know I, I don't drink. Um, so along with that, I get a lot of assumptions that I am perhaps vegan, mm-hmm. which I'm not vegan either. Um, I just simply don't drink keep it simple that was i don't i legitimately have no idea what gave damien or i the impression that like hey maybe he's he's christian you think that's what it is like (laughs) it's it's a funny thing you know how (laughs) you see someone on the street maybe that that you know you definitely don't know but you get an impression immediately like you know i'll bet he skins cats in the backyard or you know he, he owned a cache of weaponry you know maybe he likes to larp you know like the, the, uh, my my immediate like not having spoken to you yet impression was it, it seems like he's a really nice peaceful guy like a, you think he's christian <laughs> or krishna or something with the sea with some godheads in it what do you think bro and damien got the same kind of like thing like you know he did do the stuff with the Zayo people, I'll bet you he is, but no. <laughs> and Damien, no, is, everyone is wrong. The guesses were all wrong. And and Damien <laughs> is is nothing if not an atheist. Um, and so he and I differ in that category. I'm very weirdly spiritual. I just don't know what to call it. Probably like peanut butter and jelly sandwichism. I don't know. I don't know how you describe it, but I think the world's weird and mystical and beautiful. But I'm. No, I was raised by hippies. Let's face it. <laughs> but yeah, it was just a funny thing. Yeah, I am. I am. I am at my core, you know, a nihilist and a misanthrope. And you know, if anything, you know, getting older and having kids has probably changed the way that I express a lot of that. You know, it's like my childhood was not terrific, and so you know, a lot of that anger festered in my my adolescence and my, you know, early college years. And, um, you know, and so now, now I'm at a point where it's like, you know, I still believe that the world is a shithole, yeah. but 
now I have a responsibility to make sure that my children aren't a part of that shithole. <laughs> and so I, I do have to, I have to view it differently. I have to look at it a little bit differently. Um, you know, and I get called on it a lot, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for, for my wife and, and, and our family, because, you know, when I start to spiral down that drain, they'll be like, whoa, 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 let's pump the brakes. We, we don't have to be angry all the time. Like, you're right. You're right. Okay. Um, you know, and so, you know, to that end, you know, we, we have a unique, a unique space in our house because my wife and I are both atheists, but you know, when we get to this time of year, like absolutely we introduce our kids to uh, Hanukkah and, you know, Kwanzaa and Christmas and we're like, make your own choices, kids, you know, yeah. like you figure out what's going to be best for you. I'm not going to pretend to know everything. Um, you know, I went down that path in my youth and, you know, it, there's something about being practically ejected from the church because of how I looked or the music that I listened to that would made it so easy to be like, cool, I don't need anything to do with this, you know? Yeah. Um, and you know, they, they can experience that for themselves or maybe have a totally different experience because they are their own people. Um, but you know, that's, it's hard to not project those things um, onto them. So yeah, we're, we're very conscientious about that. You know, the, there's so that. that's again, that's why it gives me that laughter that it, the perception I, might be the other way. I, I I'm probably uh, I'm probably a good example of of everything you just kind of mentioned too. Uh, having come from you know some pretty uh, unspeakable abuses uh, in my childhood home, it, that's what drove me to punk, and that's what drove me out of Catholicism. Uh, but for some reason, it didn't beat the uh, spiritual out of me for some reason it actually kind of deepened it in a strange <laughs> way um only because the house i grew up in was very just odd it was to paraphrase one of my childhood best friends who i'm still friends with every time i walked into that house it felt like someone was trying to tear my soul out of my body and that, that resonated with not only me, but all five of my siblings, uh, because that was exactly the experience of being in that house. And we move into this house, like not to jumble it up with some of my personal shit, but, you know, from ages like two to 12, we lived in one home and then we moved two blocks up the road move into this fixer upper that never got fixed up because we were living in it. No one fixes up a house they live in face it, but <laughs> we get in there and, and, and everyone's personality changed. There was something about this, this place that was very ominous and, and, and like obsidian. It was a void. It was a, it was a, a spiritual void. This house, everyone changed. Everyone became their worst selves here. Except for my mom, she's the fucking best. But, you know, that's what, sadly, the dark shit is what makes me believe in something maybe interdimensional or in psychologically invented to the point where it became real, if that makes sense. But I, I think there's some dark, dark energy in the universe. And. Yeah. You know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So there's probably something, if not benevolent, at least uh, <laughs> nicely neutral. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, if you want to call it Jesus, Buddha, Harry Krishna, or a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the closet, 
I'm good with all of those. <laughs> that's where I come from. So it's, yeah, it, I think that's a healthy approach to have truly because I mean, then you get down that debate of, you know, whose God is the right God, whose God is the wrong God. And it's like, well, that's, that's such sketchy territory to be in. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a silly argument. It's like, uh, it's like pulling off school shootings because there are Eagles fans in the school and you know, you're, uh, anybody who's not an Eagles fan because everybody hates Eagles fans. So <laughs> they're like, you, you get into these things that are really like non sequiturs in the grand scheme of reality and, and let that chap your ass. Like, come on, man, life sucks to begin yeah. with. Why make it, why make it infinitely harder for other people around you? That's why I don't think you're a nihilist because I, I can't picture you, um, trying to make someone's life more difficult just for the sake of it. That's to me, true nihilism. Now you have the, the, the nihilists from, you know, the, the French nihilists, you know, Sartre, people like that. I can get down with that. I, I was way into it, uh, as a kid, especially because it spoke to me and I was angry and pissed and I'm sure you were too. Um, but how did you how did you find that? How did you stumble into that? I mean, I, I think it was just the, the environment that I grew up in, you know, like it, it was it was one of those moments where, you know, I think about all the all the values, and, you know, core values that I have now. At some point, somewhere along the way, someone would introduce me to a record and they'd be like, hey, this is all that stuff you're always talking about, you know? So I, I had belief systems that I didn't know were belief systems because I didn't know that other people shared them, you know? Uh, you know, it was, you know, even, I remember when a buddy of mine gave me a copy of, you know, Earth Crisis. Um, and it was like, hey man, this band's always thinking about the same stuff you're always talking about. And uh, that's when I learned that Straight Edge was the thing and that mm -hmm. there was a whole community of people that, that, that shared those, those same beliefs. Um, and so, you know, it, I think just growing up in those types of environments, right? You just create these, uh, I don't know, protections, I guess, you know, around yeah. you to, to shield you from whatever's going on. And, uh, you know, in my youth, it's foolish enough to think that, you know, I was the first person to think of those things. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then as, as you get older and you realize like, no, that like this, this shit's happening everywhere. And, and for different reasons, people feel the same way that you do. And that's where you find that community. And, you know, when I said earlier, you know, like hardcore saved my life, like that's what I mean, you know, finding, yeah. finding out that like, that I'm not alone. It, whereas you know, I might've felt like a pariah at the time because no one else understood. I found at least one other person who understood. And, you know, we, we share that bond for three minutes just to, to be in a room together to do whatever. And, um, you know, like that's, uh, it's just wild to me to think that you know somewhere out there there's a world full of people that feel similarly and i don't know, like again i feel that obligation and that um that i need to give back to that because that got me through so many different hurdles throughout my life and i'm thankful now that i have so many less of those <laughs> but i know that you know but I, i'm not uh immune to the fact that i know that there's someone out there right now there's some 19 year old kid that feels the way that I felt. And it's like, can I do anything to help them? I don't know. We'll find out. So you, were, so you were 19 when you got into hardcore? 
or no younger? i was definitely i was definitely younger yeah i was i was in my early teens i lived in a very small town so we didn't have um you know we didn't have a scene to speak of um there was no record stores you know so admittedly i i got into i got into hardcore either from friends um i actually distinctly remember one time i had a friend who he bought a cd off of ebay and it was just a cdr it was literally some kid just made a mixtape and was selling them on ebay and it had you know refused and dillinger escape plan and a whole bunch of other like bands that are obviously seminal now but those, that was the first time we were hearing that, you know, we're in his, we're in his living room listening to the scene. We're like, we don't know who the fuck these bands are, but they're incredible. And now we need to figure out who they are. And, you know, we didn't have Shazam then, you know, we had to we do a lot of work to figure out who it was. Um, or whenever I wanted to buy like a hardcore CD, most of them were Christian hardcore because I had, you know, the only access that I had were like local Christian bookstores yeah. where I could go and I could, I could say, Hey, I need this new living sacrifice wait six weeks and come in and then i could you know finally go and get it um and so I, I didn't have a lot of access to it and it wasn't really until i got into college truly that i had unfettered access and then at that point it was like okay i've got a job i've got a car <laughs> and I'm, I'm living you know at least slightly further away from this very small town um and so during during that time period i mean it, it would be three nights a week you would find me driving from the middle of the state to detroit to go to a rock and roll show, you know, yeah. just to be at the shelter and, and seeing who was playing there. Um, and that was when things really took off, but definitely, you know, those, those moments of, you know, when you're a youth and you've got your, your Walkman, you put in that cassette, you headphones, and you're sitting in your room, you know, like those were, <laughs> those were incredibly formative for me. And so <laughs> it's like, that's uh, that's the part that, you know, I, I still get to do that to this day. And it's great that I get to do it with, you know, rad people. And I get to be the first person to maybe hear this record and then be like, okay, how can I shape this and put it back out in a different different way and give someone that, that butterfly feeling. And and you know that that's what's you know, I, I think I took for granted how cool my very small city that I grew up in a suburb of. Scranton is not a big city by any stretch of the imagination. It's a it's a shitty town. Uh it's getting better, but it was just a small city. I, I'm juxtaposed by two very small cities, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania and Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, growing up in my town, there was a, a small clutch of skater slash hardcore kids that I, I had fallen in with. And my claim to fame was my uncle and dad took me to see The Who with the Clash opening at Shea Stadium in 83. You know, so I'd already gotten punk cred before I knew I was a punk, before I knew what punk really was. <laughs> and, and you know, I stumble into, you know, the suicidal tendencies of it all and minor threat. And, and that's all. It had already kind of happened by the time I found it. But that late 80s youth crew thing was starting to really trickle in. And that's when I started going to shows. And we got inside out played my town uh gorilla biscuits a bunch of times judge bold shelter like th they would come through here because there was about 100 kids 150 kids who would come and see them yeah I got, I got so lucky to grow up you know almost on the east coast and to be close enough to new york city and close enough to philadelphia that people would give half a shit to jump through here i can't imagine uh, you know growing up where you did and trying to 
find something to call your own. I, I found hardcore for the same reasons you did. I didn't really have, I had siblings. I love my siblings, but I didn't have a, a, a family that I connected with in any kind of meaningful way. And, you know, being the skinny, dorky kid with a, a, an inordinately deep voice for a 12 year old, especially, um, you know, I, I got made fun of. I had big ears. Uh, I wasn't the nicest looking guy on earth. So I got fucked with a lot and I had to learn how to fist fight and, and I got really angry and I had nowhere to put it. So I, I find this very aggressive, very inordinately positive in, in many respects music. And these people who, okay, we're, you're going to fuck each other up in a mosh pit, but somebody's going to pick you up, dust you off and give you a hug and be like, all right, let's get back to it. And you, you're not a, just a spectator. You're, you're a part of a, an organism almost. It's so, it, it's, it saved my life. Like it saved your life. Yeah. Um, that's why I played in hardcore bands and that's why I'm doing a podcast today. And, you know, it's, it's great that you have something that I think is really, really resonates with, you know, the people who are in the know mind over matter is, is a very, it's almost a prestigious thing because it's so uh, fully realized in its way by everything that you do. Even the t-shirts I think are just very well done and, and, and thoughtful. Um, I understand though, that they're not exactly as easy to monetize. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like doing a t-shirt is it's, 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 it's not as fetishized. I, I think that's getting better though. Yeah. Because I, I get emails and, and text messages from people that I know that do you still have that, you know, earth crisis destroy the machines hoodie that you had back in 94. Well, yeah, I do because I keep everything. Why? Oh, I'll give you 170 <laughs> bucks for it. It's like, well, well, come on over, man. I mean, there's, the, there's that, there's that market now, but it's, it's wild how, this thing that you know it was it was quaint almost you know that we're a part of this little thing that's under the radar that i can't imagine back in like 1990 that i would be able to sell my infest t-shirt for 450 dollars, but i did i have a, a marginal man t-shirt that they screen printed in front of me and sold me and i sold that for about 500 bucks yeah what is going on um and i'm not one of these people who are angry at bands like turnstile i think it's great that they're huge i love that absolutely i think mm -hmm. i think they're great i think yeah do they sound a lot like 311 yeah i'm not mad about <laughs> that i think they're pretty good i mean i'm they're they're a really good version of the quickness era bad brains is what they are but they're phenomenal i and think I think it's also important to recognize, like I, I've been saying for quite a while now that like we, uh, you know, on the, in the evolution, the, the, the cycle of popular music that we've been due for like guitar music to come back into the mainstream. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's easy to roll your eyes as like, you know, a quote unquote hardcore kid and look at turnstile and be like, Oh, this is, this is not hardcore, but like, that's that gateway band. That's yeah. going to be that band that someone's going to find them and then they're going to end up on 
856's uh, YouTube channel, and then they're going to discover a whole new universe of music that's going to it's going to shift their reality. I think yeah. that's huge. So like, I'm super excited to see bands like Stern, Turnstile, uh, Scowl, Gel, like all these bands that are just doing you know amazing stuff right now. And you know, some of these albums are great. Some of them, I don't got a emergency on my street um yep. you know and you know but not you know they don't have to be that that perfect record for me because i think it's just important that that's going to be a gateway for somebody um so i celebrate that shit i think it's amazing and you know i'm excited to see that type of music just start to get popular again because i think that's gonna that's gonna unleash just a floodgate i think in five or six years we're gonna have just a pile of amazing bands because you know the youth of today is gonna discover music that they didn't know was popular and it'll be easy for people in our age to go ah it was better back in the 90s but it's it's still gonna be you know it's again it's this the it's this the circle of life here you know and in 20 years time those kids will have their their own record labels and their own podcasts or whatever version of podcasts exists in 2050 <laughs> and uh you know they'll be pontificating about how turnstile changed their life <laughs> and i think that's i think that's huge i think that's amazing i d- and and furthermore like i think the last time something got this close to the mainstream with the exception of like well nirvana was a part of the reason why this happened but sick of it all scratched the surface 1994 that record released on the same label or subsidiary of the same label as pantera uh east west records um scratch the scratch the surface comes out um it provides a, a yet another bridge for metal people to come into hardcore and be like okay you know this is this is heavy but it's not quite metal but it's metal enough that i'm i'm gonna get into it and that made hardcore really grow again because back in the late 80s early 90s everybody's like well hardcore is dead i mean that was that was the word on the street even going to hardcore shows like yeah i mean it's cool but it's not as cool as it was in 85 like sorry dude in 85 i was nine i wasn't going to hardcore shows yet i still had a couple years but <laughs> you, you know like that was the word on the street that was yeah it was it's not like it was when it first happened Um, yeah okay whatever but it started to become something again and and you know that that 92 through 95 96 period where bands like snapcase earth crisis strife were really generating heat um on the album charts proper which was really interesting uh and that of course had its time and then fell away and i'm not yeah i'm i have no piss takings about pop music or especially hip-hop because hip-hop's a like a dead 50 percent of of what i was into when i was a kid it was hip-hop and and hardcore and post-punk that was all my you know universe of music <laughs> but now like I, I had no problem with any of it i didn't love pop music but i wasn't sitting around going eh, you know the kids these days because who the fuck was i but I, I i draw a distinct parallel between that mid-90s thing to now with the exception of one thing 
what we were trying to make happen then is actually happening now with you know the the pc of it all the acceptance of it all because we were very much pro all of that we were very much into like you know like equality and and feminism and 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 gay rights and now it's such a reality that i i almost i don't feel responsible but i feel proud that we were protagonists for something that came into fruition finally and i think since there's a slight difference in age between us i wonder like what your view of that is because i th i think your generation was a, a bit closer to seeing this realized than mine was yeah absolutely yeah and i don't think we have too much of an age gap um you know so i, I just turned 40 this year right so um just just a little bit behind you but I, I think you're totally right and i think that you know i think that what we did well was we kind of laid that foundation um for that to be just kind of like an important part of the community of the scene and i think that you know i, I remember you know starting my first anti-racist action chapter you know yeah. in my college town and being like this is something we need and i knew a lot of people in my age were like why why do we need that like that's not a thing i'm like no it's a thing you gotta be you know we have to you have to be aware of it so i think you know as we've grown up and we've had kids of our own and we've had that that mentality shift we were talking about how do you how do you raise them to be a part of the solution instead of being a part of the problem um you know, so now, now some of those kids have gotten old enough and they've started bands and they're in that scene and they just grew up hearing acceptance and understanding that, you know, that it's not just a boys club in the hardcore scene and that we do have to be open and welcoming. And, you know, they, they just, they've known that their whole lives, you know, whereas I think maybe when you and I were going to hardcore shows in its heyday, there was maybe still people that were coming and they were learning about that for the first time. You know, it almost felt like at times that we were kind of recruiting to be like, Hey man, oh, yeah. you got to be a part of this movement. And now it's built into the scene, which I think is incredible, you know? So not to pat ourselves on the back when I say we laid the foundation, but I think that some of the work we, we did was important for, to that end. We were still like, especially in Pennsylvania, still kicking Nazis out of the scene in, in the early nineties. It was, uh, especially Allentown. Uh, there was a very storied venue called the Airport Music Hall. And Allentown it was then and still is kind of besieged by white power groups. And there's a whole story behind all that that I will tell you off camera because I'm not going to incriminate myself. But we got into some things that became very confrontational. Uh, and I... I'm sure it's a necessity in some places still, but I don't think it's as widespread, but being married to a woman of color now is not as counter as it would have been back then in this area, which is completely mind blowing to me because my, my uncle's a man of color and I remember it being a very hot button when I was in high school and junior high school. To the point where, uh, like, their home would get vandalized and I'd end up in fistfights. That wouldn't, like, as much as the Trump thing became so polarizing, uh, at least you know who those people are. Yeah, you they wear the hats. They're they wear the hats. They, 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 <laughs> you know what I mean? Not all Nazis shaved their heads and wore braces. 
back in those yeah. days. Like they, they came in every form. Uh, it's, I, I just think for as polarized and fucked up as society has become in this era, I still think it's a bit better than it was quite a bit. Yeah. Hey, I, I, again, I think that that's where that, uh, that nihilism maybe sneaks in a little bit. Cause I, I don't think quite a bit, I think it's marginally better. Um, I, I just think it's messed up that there's still there's still just places in the world that they, there's an open space for them. You know, they have that community the same way that we do, and I think that's fucked up. Um, you know, I think back to you know, kind of going back to when I said we were talking about like recruiting. You know, I, I have an anti swastika tattoo that I got when I was like 17. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I remember through most of my life, I'd meet people like, "Why do you have that?" Like, again, that's not a problem, man. Like, Nazis aren't really around. Um, and when I was in a band, I remember we, we had this bad habit of, you know, we would book these DIY tours and they would fall apart. We would, we would just find any show that we could find to hop on so we could still play a show when we were out on tour. Yeah. And we were in Canada and we played this, uh, we played this bar and we did the same thing we always did. You know, we had a, sh- we had a show that fell through. So we rolled up to this bar and we said, Hey, listen, we just want to play a show tonight. Can we set up our merch? We'll play first. We can do our thing. And, um, and they're like, sure, why not? You know, so we, we get everything all set up. We start playing. I'm a sweaty mess. I take off my shirt. People start to fill in. They're doing their thing. And I realized about maybe halfway through the set that we are at a Nazi bar. And this place is filled wall to wall with white supremacists. And I'm like, where the fuck is my shirt? I gotta, we need to rectify this and I need to get out of this building ASAP. Like I am heavily outnumbered. You know, so we we literally we we wrapped up that set. We got our stuff. We busted out of there, and they were like, "Holy shit, you almost died!" And I was like, "Yes, I did." And now you understand like why why I have this tattoo and why I feel the way that I do. I mean, yeah, that tattoo almost just literally got me, <laughs> you know, got me, it, you know, kicked out of Canada and potentially murdered. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think I think that that's just that reminder for me is that you know, it, if anything, the internet has made it easier for these people to find that community. Um, and so you know, and again, that's where you know, maybe ten years ago, I would have been just filled with frustration and rage over knowing that that was a thing. And now it's like, well, now I, I'm just my responsibility is with my kids and making sure that they they don't fall into that community. You know, how do I how do I find them? You know, that more positive, supportive one that's gonna teach them positive life lessons instead of whatever bullshit they're spewing. (laughs) Now we've come to the part of the show, ladies and gentlemen, where I ask the one and only pre-written question that I have for every person that comes on the podcast, which is, what is it that terrifies you on an existential level? I ask everyone this because it, it cuts to the quick of who you are as a person. What we fear is kind of what we are. Hmm. That's one of those that has probably changed throughout the years. Um, but I think, I don't know. I think right now at this, this point in my life, like there's not much that I fear. You know, I think I've, I've conquered all that I came to conquer. And, you know, I, I had those, those moments in my life where it was like, all right, you know, uh, it was a turning point, you know, and they sound cliche, but when you learn like, Hey, you know, you only get one shot at this. And so you got to just grab the bull by the horns. And I've, I've lived through those. And I'm, I'm happy to say that any point where I've, I've had a choice to make, I just did it. I took the plunge. I took that, you know, 
um, that fearful step forward. And, and I think if I died tomorrow, I would be satisfied with everything that I've accomplished, you know, like I've learned to let go of that fear of not seeing that thing through to the end, you know, like we've talked a lot about my kids, but yeah. you know, I'll never see that through to the end. I won't fully know how they live their whole lives, you know, <laughs> how they, how they complete all of those things. But, um, you know, uh, I've learned to let go of that, that need to like see it through to the bitter end and be that person who finishes everything. And, you know, I feel confident that when I'm given, given an opportunity, I'm going to run with it. I'm going to do my damnedest at it. <laughs> and, and hopefully, you know, um, enrich some, some people around me while I do it. So control is, is something that seems to be a, a, a prescient thing in, in the fore of your mind, like seeing things through the end and, 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 you know, like steering the course of fate seems to have been something that you needed to get past. Yeah. Yeah. I used to, I used to really think that everything's pre-written and that, you know, it was, it was doomed from the start. Why bother? You know? Right. Um, and then that, that turned into a, to your point, kind of a control piece. Like, okay, well I gotta, I gotta wrap my arms around this. I'm not going to let anything control me like that. And um, yeah, I've, I've learned to let that go quite a bit and now now it's about all right i'm i'm, I'm along for the ride i'm gonna let, it, let the cards fall how they may and then i'm gonna do the best with whatever i'm given for those cards and uh you know that gamble is fun and with that you know you get to let go of that fear you get to you know you get to let go of that that panic of what if and, and instead turn it into a positive yeah what if what if something good happens? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I think that's why when you asked me that, I said that that's changed a lot over the years. Cause I think that again, you know, in my youth, it would have been like, Oh God, what if, and now, now I look forward to those moments. Cause I recognize that every time I've been faced with one of those, it worked out great, you know, took the plunge and it, it was a pivotal moment for me. It's, it, it's interesting because every time I bring it up, uh, I, I tell some version of, of, of what it is for me. And it's, it's strange that it's something so intangible that one, I don't think could conceivably get over it because, you know, you know, growing up Nova on, on PBS was a big deal for me because I was into science. I was a very nerdy kid. Uh, and you know, I would watch Carl Sagan on PBS and he would talk about, you know, the vast expanse of the universe and, at some point in the uh, populated, the celestial bodies that populate our universe will subside and there will be a nothingness. And I was very young, like probably f my son's age, four or five years old. And, and, and that notion took, sucked the air out of the room. I was like, what? There's a nothingness? There's just nothing vacuum nothing that has haunted me for the entirety of my life and there's no reason for it to because i will never know it never experience it i will have no occasion to get on any kind of vessel and and, and make it out into that nothing it's never gonna happen why does that freak me the fuck out but it does it is a legitimate like terror to the point where i often still have like nightmares about it and i have i i have uh 
it's pretty rare uh sleep paralysis disorder it's supposed to go away when you're a teenager like once puberty ends it's supposed to go i never it never left me fully uh and and, and <laughs> the impetus for so many of these things is ah there's nothing <laughs> and then and and then i get over it but isn't it strange how how you know some people uh, are grounded enough to fear something that you could conquer and then there's neurotic old me who hangs on to something that has absolutely no bearing on reality. <laughs> That's why I'm over yeah, seven months ago. <laughs> seven months ago, you could have hopped into a vessel and just gone into the ocean to find the nothing. But I hear, I hear that that uh, that business model didn't work out so. Hard. <laughs> they were just rich enough to die for nothing. Good for you. <laughs> Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> We're bad people. We're bad people. Yeah. So what's yeah. what's next on the horizon for you as far as releases go without... Uh, I know you don't want to blow yourself up, give up the ghost, but what what exciting new adventures are in the future for Mind Over Matter? Yeah, I'll, I'll spill the beans. I'm not. Okay. I'm not intentionally obtuse with it. Uh, the the main reason that I maybe don't share a lot of things until they're ready to roll is just because some some people in the vinyl community can really be punishers, and so when they know something is coming, they'll start that process of like you know sending me an Instagram message every week, like when's this going to be ready? And I'm like, it'll be ready when it's ready. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't need all that. Uh, but obviously, we've got the Shady Side record, which you know, as of taping, that's going to come out tomorrow. Uh, by the time everyone else hears this will have been out in the world for a little bit. So mm -hmm. I'm really excited to see how people respond to, you know, uh, you know, we're still just gonna have one song out, we're gonna launch quote, unquote, pre orders. Um, you know, I've got the records in hand already. Um, admittedly, I'm waiting on some jackets still, and we're gonna do some screen printing on the jackets also. So it's gonna be pretty intense packaging. I'm, I'm excited about it. Uh, and then I, I, right now you can't see it in this room, but I'm, I'm surrounded by records uh, down on the floor here. I've got five other releases that are sitting here that I'm waiting for just either like some inserts or for some jackets or for me to, to do some screen printing. Um, I've got some represses, which is nice. So we've got a few new colorways of the Gilt Barnstown Ugly Box. Knew that was coming. Um, because that one, that one sold so well. People were really excited about it. And a lot of people missed out. And um, so... Uh, Duncan and I agreed we didn't want we didn't want that to turn into another bad rabbit situation where people were paying top dollar on discogs. So um, so we've got three new colors for that and they they're awesome. They look killer. Uh, we're also doing a repress of the Dad Hats record that we released earlier this year. So good. Um, so good. So good. <laughs> so uh, the band on the show for that, and I I loved every second of it. I love that band so much. That, that band is so good and that album yeah. is so good and um I'm, I'm happy to see that it got a, a strong response and so yeah we've got a we've got a couple a couple colors of that one coming out we're doing another run of the uh, zeo gishira split seven inch yeah that's been out of print since 2018 um i'm doing a, a really cool like diy version of that one that i'm excited to uh, to share with people um the vocalist from the twin uh brian he was also in uh, Joshua Fit for Battle back in the day. Yeah. Um. He he's he's got a he's got some acoustic songs that he kind of recorded right around the time of that that twin record, and so we're doing a really cool uh, seven inch for that one. Um, 
and then there's a band out of um i want to say they're from the pittsburgh area i could be a little off on that one my geography is not the best but they're called moraine um another band that came from the iodine dudes um just some really fun kind of like post-hardcore stuff uh, it sounds like it would have been something that came out on Equal Vision in like 2003 with a little bit more of like an alternative rock mix in there. So I'm excited to see how that record does. And then I've got two Bad Rabbits records at the plant right now. So we're doing a repress of um, American Love, which is exciting. And then the new record that just came out a few days ago, um, we're doing a vinyl pressing of that as well. So we're just waiting for all the gears to turn. So there's a lot of, it's going to be a very busy back half of the year once I get some of these little bits and pieces from the plants uh, that I'm waiting on. And then we're going to start the year strong with probably a handful of releases as well. My God. I, I wish that, I wish we had all night for this because there, there's just so much inside baseball with, with the label and, and my own personal interests and, and buying it all off of you. But, um, <laughs> we all we all have families and kids, but Austin, you got to come back. We got to do this again. We got to get we got to dig deeper because we have a lot in common, and it's great. And I think uh, I, don't know, I just I, I think what you do is so special and so unique to our thing. And and the last time I had Justin Pearson on the podcast, we talked about how there is this us of it all with the scene that we're from, where it's 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 familial and 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 a recognition of you know a cohesion between two people that i don't know i think it's very obvious that we're kith and kin so i would love to have you back on again so we could do more of this i i would love that one of the things that i've kind of committed to over the last year or so is doing a better job better job of documenting um the work that goes on behind the scenes at the label um you know, there's there's been so many things that I've done where, you know, it's been to the point of absurdity, uh, the, the amount of work that has gone into it. Um, and then I, I put it out and then I almost wonder, like, did anyone even notice that, that little detail? You know, that thing that I toiled over for weeks or months. Um, and so I, I love the idea of, of diving a little bit deeper into kind of like the processes because I, I, I know that I have a very unique approach to it. The end result may feel the same. But I definitely have a very, um, very specific way that I go about things. And, you know, for some, it's fantastic. Uh, Damien hates <laughs> the way that I do it. He's like, come on, man, let's put the records out. And I'm like, I got a thing. I got a method. Let me do my method. Um, you know, even, you know, the, I bless the the boys in Shadyside. You know, we've been working on this release now for probably a year and a half. Yeah. Um, and it's been laborious, you know, at best. Um, and, and, you know, so now we're here at the end and, no one knows all the work that went to get to this point. And so it can sometimes feel a little anticlimactic once you've worked all of that stuff and, you know, you, you've had all the phone calls and the, the you know, the mock-ups and you're going back and forth with everything. But, um, you know, I, I love the idea of getting back on here and, and doing a little bit more of, you know, a, a deep dive into the process of, of how the thing, how the cheese is made, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Because uh, you know it is it is a process and it's very unique. So I love that. So well, we'll we'll get that on the books soon. And uh, thank you, man. Uh, see you soon. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. Later on. There you have it, folks. 
my discussion with Austin of Mind Over Matter Records, Vinny of Shadyside, and my own damn self. As I said before, hardcore saved our lives. <clears throat> and I love it for that. I hope you do as well. I hope you have a music and a culture in your life that helps salve your soul the way this has for us. He's been Austin. He's been Vinny. I've been Peter. You've been beautiful. And this has been the book of Very, Very Bad Things Podcast. Good night, everybody. <laughs>